Welcome to Beyond the Show, the podcast home of all things Cannabis Conference. My name is Eric Sandy, and I'm the digital editor of the Cannabis Group at GIE Media. This week, we're talking hemp. As you know, within our Cannabis Group, we publish Hemp Grower, a monthly print magazine that serves the legal hemp industry. Those farmers working with cannabis plants clocking less than 0.3% THC content. We also feature a robust lineup of hemp experts at Cannabis Conference, and you can be sure to expect even more of that in 2022. Marguerite Bolt is an esteemed columnist at Hemp Grower, and she spoke at Cannabis Conference this year. Marguerite is the Hemp Extension Specialist at Purdue University in the Department of Agronomy. She received her MS in Entomology from Purdue University and her BS in Entomology from Michigan State University. Marguerite's research has focused on hemp-insect interactions and plant chemistry. She's interested in the secondary compounds that hemp produces and how they affect insect pests, although she's had to shift her focus to agronomic production questions surrounding hemp. So we got into some of that in our conversation. We talked about the 2021 hemp harvest, as well as some of Marguerite's recent column topics with an eye toward next season. So please enjoy my conversation with Marguerite Bolt. Well, Marguerite, thanks so much for joining the show this week. It's great to get a chance to talk to you, especially at this time of year, as we get deeper into the fall, into November here, and on the far side of harvest for you and Purdue and all sorts of growers uh, working with their hemp in 2021 here. Um, You know, I figured maybe that might be a good place to start, actually, just if you want to maybe provide an overview, and I know this is sort of a broad question, but an overview of how the past month or so has gone uh, with the harvest process for you at Purdue. Um, Maybe to specify that question a little bit, uh, what were some of the the goals that you were hoping to achieve with harvest and and how'd that go? Yeah, so we had quite a few different projects at Purdue um, and a couple of the ones that I worked on were harvested in October, some in September and August, uh, but the majority was harvested in the beginning of October. So I had a grain and fiber cultivar trial, which was mostly harvested in August and September. So we were trying to get yield data for these different varieties, um, none of which have been tested um, for Purdue research at the farm that I work at just south of campus. Um, So I'm just working through entering all that data in right now. And then we also did a cannabinoid cultivar trial. And I say cannabinoid instead of just CBD because we did have some CBG specific cultivars. So we were testing 20 different cultivars and harvest was dependent on when they started flowering. So that was kind of a staggered harvest across the different cultivars with the majority being harvested uh, the first week of October. So we're trying to capture just overall yield data. So we had whole plant wet weight, whole plant dry weight, and then a shucked weight or a flower weight, which is what is going to be of the most interest to the growers and to the the seed providers who are a part of this trial. So those are still being shucked. Um, We were drying them in one of our greenhouses. And then we take these grab weights and then dry the the small amount of extra material to get percent moisture. And then we can standardize everything. So we have you know, a standard moisture content across all these cultivars since there is a staggered harvest um, across the fall months. So we want to make sure everything is treated equally. So we have the best kind of reference for growers and providers to see 
what performed better in our sort of central Indiana location. We also had a propagation trial that we harvested as well. Um, that was focused on different management practices before you plant. So different cell shapes and sizes for planting or plug trays, different light treatments while they're in the greenhouse and then different shading off treatments before they get transplanted. So we harvested all of those as well um, in mid-October. And so that was quite a task of shucking um, green or fresh material into bags. And we actually had uh, what I identified as fusarium. I don't know which species, um, but we had some bud rotting caused by um, really some of the wet weather we had. And then I think we saw some of this fusarium and other kind of um, decaying fungi move in on that really wet material. So that was an issue that we had with the propagation trials, just lots of kind of like moldy uh, bud, bud tissue. Gotcha. Yeah, definitely a, a couple threads here that I'll, I'll be interested to, to go down. Um, you know, between the grain and fiber cultivar trials and the cannabinoid cultivar trials, in just sort of a, a high level general sense, how does the harvest technique differ between those two large umbrella categories? I know we've covered this a little bit in the pages of Hemp Grower, but just in a general sense, um, how might you be approaching those, those two different segments when it comes to the, the physical harvest uh, technique? Yeah, so they are all different uh, in the sort of technology or machinery that we use. So for fiber harvest, which occurs the earliest, at least for us, we harvest when plants start to flower. We use a mower and we just use a straight sickle mower. So we don't have like wrapping or anything like that. And it just cuts um, the, the plants. We try to shoot for four inches above the soil line. It's not always easy because we're pushing it. We're not attaching it to a tractor because we have really small plots. So typically when you're doing a cultivar trial for something that's direct seeded and you have a lot of different cultivars, I had 17 different ones, you have uh, pretty small areas. So our plots were only five feet wide by 20 feet long. And then we had four replicates across a field site so we can account for variation in the field. So we used a hand push mower for the fiber. Uh, and then we gather all the stalks up and we weigh them to get that plot biomass. And then for grain, typically you would use a combine to separate the seed uh, from the green material on the plant. However, we didn't have a small plot combine that I could use. So I actually hand cut uh, the top portion of the plant and then threw them through a stationary grain thresher, which is effectively doing what the combine is doing. And that's separating those seeds so we can get a seed yield. Now, normally I would never ever recommend hand cutting um, grain plants because you typically have a lot of plants per square foot. And if you're producing for uh, commercial purposes, you have acres and acres of production. But because they're only five by 20 foot uh, large plots, it's pretty easy to go in and quickly hand cut um, that material and then just send it through a thresher. But normally that would be a combine. And then, I mean, we've talked about this in uh, hemp grower articles about different ways to harvest uh, cannabinoid hemp. And there are a lot of different machines that growers are using that companies are making specifically for this kind of wide row spacing, really large, almost like tree or shrub like plants. But we actually just cut with a large pair of um, tree loppers. So cut at the base of the plant and then you can take that whole plant and get 
uh, that whole plant yield and then shucked flower yield. Um, people use chainsaws or metal weed eaters, um, sort of. That would be kind of the, the next step up from using these just manual pruning loppers. And then, of course, there are multi-row harvesters that cut the plants and can actually pull flower material off the branches. Um, there are tobacco harvesters that cut the plants and put them up on a conveyor that can then be thrown into a wagon to take to a drying barn. Um, so there are all kinds of modifications uh, coming out there for this sort of wider row spacing, what I call a horticultural or vegetable crop model. Excellent. Yeah. And sort of uh, continuing that, that, uh, that line of conversation there around the, the shucking and the drying for the cannabinoid crops, you know, I know this is something that a lot of our readers and certainly listeners are going to be thinking about uh, as we get deeper into the fall here, especially that, that drying phase. Uh, what does that look like for you and, and Purdue? I know there are different approaches to, to drying in a, in a general sense. It's, it's, you know, it's a straightforward enough task, but a, a lot of different ways to do it. But what are some of the best practices that, that you've encountered and that you're working with this fall? Yeah, so we tried a couple different things. We tried to place plants in a barn um, on sort of a like wire mesh material to help promote airflow. And we just didn't get enough airflow in that particular barn. So we moved plants into one of our greenhouses to promote rapid drying. I wouldn't say this is a best practice for growers because you're not going to have the highest quality because it dries so fast in a greenhouse. Um, it's really hot. There's a lot of airflow. The whole point is to have a really warm environment. And so reaching that sort of ideal eight to 10% moisture content that a lot of processors are looking for is challenging when you have such a kind of dry environment. Um, so we had material that dried down lower than that. And of course, when I said, we're gonna standardize everything, um, we'll standardize it to that eight to 10% moisture. It worked for us because it's the space that we had available. Um, and for some growers, they may only have a high tunnel um, or greenhouse space available. And then that situation where it's going to get pretty hot, especially in September in the Midwest or, or October in the South, um, I would say just watching those plants really closely to make sure you don't over dry um, and making sure you turn them if you're laying them on ben benches. I've seen growers who have some pretty nice high tunnels and they can actually suspend and hang dry their plants. So it's just a matter of really paying attention to how quickly they're drying down because in states like Indiana and Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, um, where I, you know, work with a lot of growers and educators, we don't have tobacco barns. That's not very common. Maybe in Southern Indiana, there's still some tobacco barns. Ending, um, but those barns are designed to have really good airflow. So that's an advantage that, you know, Kentucky growers or the growers in the Carolinas have where they're going to have that really good airflow, which promotes drying evenly um, without over drying. So that model works really well. But I will say, you know, mechanical dryers where you can fine tune airflow and temperature could be a great option for people who don't have space. And there are a number of companies who either have um dryers you can purchase as a grower or they rent out. So I think that's going to be a really good option for folks who just don't have the space to dedicate to drying or have so much material. They may have some space, but they really are going to need a more rapid, consistent form. And you get that with mechanical dryers. So it just depends on the grower uh, and, and the market they're selling to. Certainly. And 
you know, you mentioned a, a few states there uh, in the Midwest, in the, in the Great Lakes region. Of course, we've got readers and listeners all over the place. Um, but I wanted to maybe pull back a little bit and ask you about those climate regions in general. And I know there's, you know, we're talking about a couple different states here. So maybe maybe a way of phrasing this question would just be if you could maybe describe uh, the Indiana climate and what it does in a helpful way for the hemp crop and what sort of challenges it poses for the hemp crop. And, and maybe there might be some helpful takeaways, certainly for people in Indiana or the Midwest, um, but maybe uh, some factors that growers can consider even if they're out West or somewhere else. Yeah. So Indiana kind of gets split into three regions, uh, North, Central, and South region. Um, but one thing that you know we have that really benefits us is we typically get adequate rainfall throughout the season. Now we do see summer droughts like many other states, um, but that early kind of rainfall that we get can be really beneficial to a hemp crop if you're not using any kind of irrigation. The downside of that is sometimes we get too much rainfall, which is a problem for hemp that doesn't like oversaturated soils. Um, it just doesn't perform very well when there's a lot of water surrounding the roots. And then we see a lot of uh, diseases move in early in the season. So it's kind of this balance of Sometimes we get the perfect amount of rain, but sometimes we get too much, which can be an issue in Indiana. But we also have the benefit um, of some of our growers having sandier soils, which is really common, especially in Michigan. A lot of Michigan growers have sandy soils. So when you have excessive rainfall, you at least have um, some rapid draining or better drainage compared to other growers in the Midwest. We have a lot of clay heavy hemp growers as well, where they get uh, heavy periods of rain, and then those fields hold on to that water for long periods of time. So again, that's kind of a, a double-edged sword of sometimes it's good, but sometimes it's bad. Um, and then when we have those periods of excessive rainfall in the fall uh, or in these months, which we have seen, especially near that harvest period, you can also see uh, an increase in bud diseases. So that could be things like botrytis or fusarium. I know a lot of Southern growers deal with that as well. When you have these kind of really humid, muggy fall days and then you get periods of rainfall. Now we are into November. Um, so most growers are out of the field, at least here in Indiana. Uh, if they were gonna sell their crop now, if they're gonna destroy their crop, they may you know, push back harvest um, because maybe there's a quality issue, which we do see because of some of those kind of bud diseases. But Again, that, that rainfall is one of those kind of key elements that the growers in the West don't um, get, but they also don't deal with the same kind of, especially fungal pathogens that we deal with that cause these, you know, root, foliar, and bud diseases. Yeah, and actually, you know, that might be a helpful segue back into the, the propagation trials that you had mentioned earlier. Uh, this might also be a way of you know, providing a, a look toward the start of the 2022 season. Um, I know you uh, had written about uh, trays and, and pots and, and different sizing and materials that go into propagation. And, and that's in the November issue of Hemp Grower. Uh, by the time this episode is live and folks are listening to it, that'll be in mailboxes and online. Um, but with regard to those, again, trays and pots, the different sizes that you're looking at and, and the trials that you were looking at this year, what are some maybe overarching considerations that growers might want to think about with regard to propagation, depending on whether they're going down the cannabinoid route or other routes. Are there 
are there end goals that dictate how the seasons should start with propagation? Yeah, I mean, grain and fiber growers aren't going to be propagating. That's all direct seeded. But for cannabinoid growers, you know, the biggest kind of thing I see or the most important thing I see regarding propagation, um, whether that's taking actual cuttings or starting from seeds, is just to make sure you have really healthy roots and you have clean material going out into the field or into other grow rooms. So a lot of times growers who are propagating will have a specific room set aside that hopefully is the cleanest room our cleanest option available for them because those plants are pretty vulnerable to different diseases and insects when they're very young and they can't necessarily handle that kind of damage because we're trying to, again, produce really healthy, vigorous plants uh, during that kind of stage. So I would say, you know, regardless of whether it's going to go for extract or for some states, if it's going to go into this craft or kind of smokable market, just starting off with really healthy plants uh, is going to be critical. Now, there are multiple ways to do that. And I talk about in the article, different kinds of tray options. Um, growers just want to make sure that roots don't circle or kind of girdle themselves or become pot bound or root bound because they're not going to necessarily recover from that out in the field. And I also talk about, you know, plants can look really healthy for a while, but when we get periods of heavy rainfall or maybe there is an outbreak of disease or insects, if they don't have strong root systems, they're probably not going to recover from those events, especially when we get rain and there's sort of like a pocket of water that sits around a root ball that hasn't fully expanded because it was pot bound. Those plants decline really quickly. And I have seen that on the food field where a grower had several months of healthy production. The plants look great. And then we got excessive rainfall. And then one by one, his plants just started dying off and you pull them up. And they had a uh, fusarium root rot, but that was really not the ultimate cause of death. It was the fact that these roots were just kind of tangled on themselves and hadn't fully expanded. And it caused this pocket where we just had root death. And then you see secondary pathogens often move in. So regardless of the cell shape, the cell size, the depth, finding something that works for the particular grow operation that maintains healthy roots um, and that growers know how to use. They understand that, you know, a, a shallower propagation tray probably is going to result in plants that need to be transplanted sooner rather than something that is deeper and maybe wider. There's a little bit more leeway in when a grower has to actually get those plants in the field. Yeah. Is there any, maybe I suppose ballpark estimate for, the timing of that transplanting, or if there isn't, are there uh, other physical signs that growers might want to be looking for to get ahead of that possible root constriction before it, it, it gets any worse? Yeah. So for our propagation trial, where we were looking at different um, measurements as like tray size, uh, shell, cell shape, um, we cut our plants stuck them and then transplanted them two weeks later. So they were fairly small cells with the smallest being a 72 cell tray and two weeks worked really well for us. Any longer than that, they would have been pot bound. Typically uh, a plant can be gently pulled up by the stem um, and you have roots holding on to whatever media is being used and they're not 
you know, the, the media is not falling away from those roots. Um, so you have some structure there, but roots aren't totally encircling on themselves. So if they're doing that, it's probably too late. So checking, you know, pretty frequently, gently, you know, tugging on those plants. But I would say in general, for people who are taking cuttings, two weeks seem to work really well for us. For seedlings, three weeks worked for us in 50 cell uh, square trays. Any longer than that, uh, three week period, you typically in a 50 cell, you know, three inch deep tray, you're going to have root binding. So understanding again, that um, the, the depth and sort of width of those cells is going to help you determine when you need to transplant. So something that is like a larger air pruning um, cell, those are going to provide maybe a couple extra weeks. And if a grower can't get in the field and their plants are starting to maybe get root bound, you know, when we have these periods of heavy rainfall, if there's some kind of other event and they can't get out in the field, a grower may have to transplant to bigger pots. That's not ideal because it does put more stress on the plant. Um, but I'd say just choosing larger cell sizes, if a grower thinks that there is going to potentially be a delay um, in planting is going to be a way to kind of save themselves from issues down the road. Excellent. Um, well, I know, you know, as we get into November here, it's certainly as busy a time as any in the calendar year, but I'm curious, you know, as we get deeper into sort of the colder weather, uh, hopefully not for a little while, but of course it's coming, uh, what sort of um, maybe lesser known tips might you have for growers to prepare for the 2022 season? Um, again, there's uh, a few months off, or there's plenty of time here, but the time does move fast. Are there things that growers might be able to do, to do even on the administrative business side to really get ahead of the ball for, for next spring? Yeah, hopefully, and I always encourage this for the growers I work with is to collect uh, data throughout the season so they can take these winter months to look at plant performance. And these could be things like looking at nutrient management and how it affects plant growth, looking at overall yields. Growers do variety trials as well records of uh, pest issues. So this is a really great opportunity for growers to take that summer data and start looking and evaluating what they may want to do differently next year uh, before they decide to go through licensing. They can do this and say, okay, you know, I grew three different varieties and these were the ones that had the best cannabinoid profile and the best yield. I want to only grow these. Um, particular varieties next year. And that's important for FSA registration. So each variety is registered as its own FSA subfield number, which takes a lot of time. So I had to do that um, myself as a researcher. I had, I think, over 30 different FSA subfield numbers. It's really time consuming for growers to do. And so they can take that data on different varieties and hopefully reduce the kind of time they're spending filling out forms and applications. Um, by just determine, determining, you know, the ideal variety for their location based on the previous uh, field season's data. I also think it's a really good opportunity for growers to look at maybe pest or disease issues and connect with researchers or extension educators or private industry folks that they know uh, and trust and try to develop management plans early on and figure out ways that hopefully reduce potential issues in the 
the following field season. So it's impossible for us to know everything. Um, this includes researchers, consultant growers, but if we form a really good network of people that we can reach out to and rely on, we're going to have a better idea of how to increase plant performance in the next year. And so I really think just taking the current field seasons information and compiling it in a way where you can get a lot of useful information about the following season is going to be a great technique for growers to kind of use and move forward with if they're not doing it already. Um, that is going to hopefully prevent a lot of heartbreak. Certainly. Yeah. That's a, a great point there. You know, looking back while looking ahead, uh, especially at, at this time in, in the calendar year. Um, well, Marguerite, uh, it's been great talking with you. Uh, it sounds like a lot of really interesting projects are still in the works there at Purdue. Uh, we always love following along through your columns and of course, through, through catching up with you like this and, uh, Really appreciate you uh, taking the time to, to join the show this week. Yeah, thanks, Eric. And that's a wrap on another episode of Beyond the Show. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Marguerite Bolt. I know I did. It's always great to get a chance to talk to someone who is featured so heavily in our print publications to bring them onto the show here uh, on the podcast and give them a different platform to get into some of the topics they explore regularly. You know, it's an interesting time in, in hemp and in outdoor cannabis, especially uh, just thinking about the, the past season and getting ready for next season. Uh, as we've mentioned in a few episodes already, it's, it's, you know, the off season is kind of a misnomer. You're never really away from, from the job necessarily. But after harvest, there is time to sort of regroup and, and get a sense of what went well this year and how you can plan to improve the following year. So hopefully that conversation sheds some light on the hemp side of the business. We'll be back next Friday with a whole new outlook on the cannabis industry. And I hope you enjoy that as we continue to go beyond the show. <laughs>